Welcome to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. And another good Saturday afternoon to everybody, uh, if it happens to be Saturday when you're listening, uh, because it's Saturday when we're doing this. Yes, and if it's any other <laughs> time of the week, it's good enough to us. That's right. And howdy, howdy anyway. Howdy, howdy. Uh, Harry Alexander with you and Bunker de France uh, here in Tucson in Los Angeles. It is Todd Roberts. Hello, Todd. Hello. And our special guest, Dan Galeasso, who's also in Los Angeles. Hey, it's kind of like a tag team match, us against them. Yeah. It's a, WWE. Yeah, the Tucson boys against the L.A. boys. Anyway, uh, Dan is uh, uh, quite the guy. He's a, a former bull rider. He's done documentaries on Comanches. He worked on the Rough Riders uh, television miniseries. He's uh, been a movie consultant. He's a Western historian. He's a huge fan of the Alamo, and he is uh, going. He is writing a book about Custer and uh, the films of Custer uh, that are made about Custer, and uh, that's pretty much what we're going to uh, talk about today. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Harry. Nice to meet you in Bunker and per- over the airwaves, anyone. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you are you are quite the master guy here uh, in in the little one sheets that uh, Todd sent to us uh, prior to um, going to air. My God, you have a number of accomplishments for such a uh, young don't man. Don't believe it; it's all lies. Okay, okay. good, good. That, that's um, what we thought. I thought so. Uh, good. Any, anything coming from Hollywood? Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> goes without saying. So uh, let's uh, Custer. Uh, he, I got. I want, let's, let me do. Okay, this yeah, we we, we got a, we got a couple of uh, house cleaning gizmos to do, and then we'll. This is something I like to do every once in a while. Uh, it's from the American Hunter magazine that I get from MRA, and, and, and NRA. Did I say M or M? You said M. Oh well, <laughs> MR. Yeah, yeah, yeah M- <laughs> MRI. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, they have a column called the Armed Citizen, and I love it because it's it's cases where everyday people who own guns for protection uh, shoot some nefarious bad guy because he's doing bad guy stuff. Anyhow, I want to read this. An elderly woman fatally shot a 19-year-old intruder around 12.45 a.m. after the intruder had attacked her fiancé. The couple was asleep in their Fredericksburg, Texas home when they heard a loud banging noise coming from outside. A man, age 73, went to check the back porch and upon encountering the intruder was attacked and hit with a blunt object. The homeowner homeowner was then put into a chokehold by the home invader which caused him to lose consciousness. The woman woke up during the fight and asked the intruder to stop attacking but was ignored. According to the Gillespie County Sheriff's Office she received a handgun from a bedroom and fired one shot. But the culprit continued to attack. Fearing for her safety after seeing her unconscious fiancé, she fired a second shot which hits the assailant in the head. The male homeowner regained consciousness, called 911, according to the police. After transport to the local hospital, the teenage thug succumbed to his injuries. Bummer. Texas, you don't mess with you don't mess with them Texas ladies, even if they are 
grannies with their fiance. I never you would. Ne- never would. Never, never mess with them. Yeah. Well, and that goes a lot to what's going on in the country today. But I, while I do want to talk about that, I really want to talk about this instead because that's what the program is all about, the Old West. Yeah. So, Custer. Uh, Dan, we've heard <clears throat> numerous stories about Custer. And, uh, and they're all true. Well, we kind of equate, uh, at least I, I look at it, like with all the info that's out there on the ERP situation, uh, the OK Corral and all of that. There's five sides to every story, and all five of them think they're correct. Is there a simple story behind Custer's infamous last stand. It was nutty as a fruitcake. <laughs> like any piece of Western history, whether it's the Alamo, whether it's the OK Corral, Billy the Kid, like you said, there's five different versions. But the plain fact of the matter is, Custer was repatriated by the professional historians and biographers 30 years ago. There was a book by Evan Connell that became a miniseries called Son of the Morning Star fantastic book. Another book by a guy named Jim Donovan just a few years ago called A Terrible Glory. All of the kind of anti-Custer stuff, and he wasn't a perfect man by any means, but, you know, have all been repudiated. I mean, he wasn't Hitler on the plains. You know, yes, he attacked Black Kettle's village in 1868. Well, all those young warriors were raiding the Kansas settlements. There was actually a woman in that village, a white captive and her son, that were both killed. Hmm. They took 50 captives. All the stories about Montecita, the the Cheyenne girl that he supposedly had an affair with, Mm -hmm. and then she had a baby. She was eight months pregnant when she was captured at the Washita. The stories about Custer disobeying orders, having to wait for the other troops totally have been disproved. He was actually going to wait a day to attack, not because other troops would have been closer, but because he wanted to scout the village for intelligence, and they were discovered by some warriors that had headed out of the village. I could go on and on with all of those. All of our misconceptions about Custer's Last Stand have been reputed by, by people, people far more knowledgeable than me, and I've spent a lot of time in that battlefield. Yeah, so. and we're sorry. You're, sorry about the echo. There, we're getting more echoes, and I think I understand why the problem is that we're getting all of these echoes between Todd and Dan, and that's because they're both on the same internet connection. So that is why that's happening. Yeah, you know, I, I got a question for for Dan. It's a little off off Custer for a second, but. It, it's I, it's out of curiosity, because you were a bull rider, is that correct? Amateur rodeos here in California, yes, Okay, sir. well, I, I, I tried my hand at it, too. And I've got, to, I've got to confess that there's a myth that all bull riders wear a hat that's a six and seven eighths, <laughs> and because the heads are so small. And looking at your picture, it looks like you've got a healthy head. And uh, so... I, I I had the pleasure or displeasure. I I, I drew a bull at the Navy uh, Point Wyneme Navy Relief Rodeo back in '59, uh, and you may have heard of the bull. His name was Boxcar. Belonged to Andy Aragi. 
Hey, if it was Andy was the big stock contractor down here in those yeah. days. Well, Boxcar was the bull that they used in the movie Lusty Men that it was the bad bull that killed Arthur Honeycutt. Mm. And that's my one claim to fame in the rodeo <laughs> world is I, I, got, I got my head planted about three feet in the dirt by Boxcar. Well, the bull I rode, well, it wasn't uh, anywhere near as famous as yours, and, and I did it twice because I thought it was so much fun the first time. When I got kicked off, I thought, hey, let's do that again. And his name was Petunia. Yeah, I don't know what his name was, but I <laughs> stayed on the next eight seconds. <laughs> you know, for some reason, this is starting to remind me of my prom day. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this, Harry. <clears throat> because you know, in a lot of in a lot of the rodeos, I I learned this the hard way because I was riding bulls over in New Mexico as a kid, and uh, started over in Carrizosa at their little beaver rodeo, but I didn't realize until I got over to California where there were some real rodeos. There's a big difference between a yearling and a full grown bull. Yeah, and that's yes. maybe what they were putting us on. I found myself overmatched pretty quick. I don't know what kind of bull this was. Uh, and, and this is eons ago. And I, I know that it was American stock that was uh, sent over to Europe because they were going to be doing a rodeo. Did they have uh, a Texas accent? And, and, well, they, I, I didn't talk to the steer, so I I'm, don't remember. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, I, that much I do remember of that. It was quite the experience and um, one that uh, I shall never repeat again. <laughs> well, uh, to get to my point, which it took me a long time to get to, Dan, have you got us a, a great bull riding story here, uh, oh, yeah. which doesn't embarrass you <laughs> or the bull too much? Well, there was a bull that Dan Russell had called Sleepy. He was a big purebred gray Brahma. And I drew him at the Merced Rodeo. Oh, okay. And this is in the days when most of the county fair rodeos in central California were all California Cowboys Association amateur rodeos. They weren't mm -hmm. PRCA rodeos back then. And I'd just come back from Larry Mahan's rodeo school Ooh. in Mesquite. In the old arena that was Donnie Gade's dad's arena, Neil Gay. Mm -hmm. And I'd been back about two months and this was a, you know, I got rung out the first three bulls they put me on <laughs> at Mayhan School. I did, all I saw was black. I finally <laughs> said, I got to keep my damn eyes open and, and see what's going on here. <laughs> when I drew that bull, and he had a reputation amongst, you know, this wasn't PRCA stuff, but he was kind of mean because he was a purebred. And he was a big, he was about 16, 1,700 pounds. <laughs> so I had to talk myself into this and not pull out and i had a friend rick bongornio who later went pro and he'd had him the night before and he said look the first three jumps are the worst if you can get past the first three jumps mm -hmm. he's whipped cream he's just going to spin into your hand and just stick with him and of course, I only made it through the third jump, and then I was down in the dirt. <laughs> and I started scrambling, and I don't—I didn't see any of this, but the announcer reminded everybody of this. Evidently, old Sleepy got right behind me, mm. flipped part of one of my legs up a little bit, and I shot out of there like a rocket, evidently. <laughs> and the rodeo announcer came on and said, did you ever see a guy scramble out of there so damn quick? <laughs> That's uh. funny. 
That's That's right. I, I was playing donkey baseball uh, or donkey softball uh, for, for a radio station a long time ago. And uh, the the object is you hit the ball, you get on the donkey, you ride to first, right? And everybody has a donkey. And uh, so I hit the ball, I get on the donkey, and I, 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 I swing over his back and then fall the other way. And so I'm ha- I'm straddling underneath the donkey, and the donkey is trotting on down to first base. Well, I've lost my grip and fell onto the ground. And I hear this, oh, from the crowd, because of where they thought the donkey stepped. <laughs> and I get up, and everybody's going, whoo, boy, that was good. <laughs> well, you know, you were riding in Australia, Australian Apparently style. Apparently so. That's down under. They're down under. Yeah. All right. Back to, back to Custer. Back to Custer. <clears throat> uh, it, is there a favorite Custer film of yours, Dan? Well, <laughs> Uh, oh, Bucker's going to like this because I've been listening to reruns of the show and stuff, but I'd have to do a toss-up. One's not actually a Custer film, but it's kind of a Custer film. Of course, They Died With Their Boots On is not authentic history, right. but it sure is the most entertaining film. Yep. Mm. And Fort Apache, because it deals with the themes of yes. you know a headstrong officer led into a trap that are the myths of Custer's last hand. And Fort Apache is one of the greatest westerns ever made. Right. And that last stand sequence is right out of a Remington painting. Even though he never painted anything like that, yeah, when, yeah. when Henry Fonda, they hear the thunder of the Apache hooves, and he's going to die with those guys because he led them into that trap, and he turns with that pistol to fire, that still is a Frederick Remington painting. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that, 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 that shot also reminds me, if you probably remember, A1 Beard used to have some great Western paintings that they used to... Uh, Sell their beer. And their Custer painting was one of the best. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, well, you aren't talking about the Amheiser Bush painting, are you? No, that's that's the famous one. A1. A1 beer. A1, you know, A1 had the Black Bart, they had a whole series of Black Bart paintings and things like that. And it was, it was more, the the Budweiser was the whole big battle. The the, uh, A1 was more, more like the uh, Fort Apache. I, I'm not familiar with it. It sounds really cool. You need to email me uh, an attachment so I can take a look at that. Well, yeah, that'll have to be Harry. Yeah, I don't yeah. have a computer. <laughs> he's he, he's still. I can, the, I, can, I can do. I can do a very poor hand sketch for you. Yeah, he's, in, he's still in the dark ages uh, regarding that. <laughs> I love the dark ages. <laughs> I, I, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with a campfire. What? What? A you tra- know, Harry. If you're looking for the most authentic Custer movie done, okay. It would still have to be the miniseries Son of the Morning Star. Mm-hmm. It's it's not perfect. It's pretty visual to look at. Uh, Dean Semler, who was the director of photography, won the Academy Award for Dancers with Wolves. They just finished up Dancers with Wolves. Mm. And he took his Australian crew down to prior Montana, south of Billings, where they were filming. And they filmed some of the best footage. They were just there on a lark. They were mm. like, you're doing Custer's Last Stand? Mm. Of course we'll help you out. <laughs> and so there's some beautiful photography in it. The problem is the book is so much better than the miniseries. The mm. miniseries is visually very, very stunning. and won a couple of, of uh, Emmys for best costuming and stuff. But uh, Gary Cole played Custer, and he didn't have any of the... The verve and the yeah. charisma mm-hmm. that Harold, that uh, Errol Flynn had, and they died with their boots on. Mm-hmm. The swagger. Yeah, he got, you know he did. Uh, well, he did Jeb Stewart, uh, Jeb Stewart in 
in Santa Fe Trail with, uh, I think, one of the most ludicrous custers, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, but uh, and I, I like Ronnie, but I, I didn't like his custer. Did you have you seen the uh, court martial of General George Armstrong Custer? Oh, yeah. another case of a pretty good book, but. The way they produced that show, the way they rewrote the script, and they they worked in these kind of sexual innuendo that what if he was sterile Mm -hmm. and Libby, you know. I mean, it was a fascinating novel to look at it as what would happen if Custer if he had lived. But the production was was pretty weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got another question, another one question for you on another because you're you're mentioning books to movies. Uh, a great book, uh, movie, Bugles in the Afternoon. The Ernest Haycock book was, and he's one of the great Western writers. But that was that was a, uh, yeah. You're you're absolutely right, Bunker. That's considered one of the great Western novels until Lonesome Dove came around, and the movie's not bad. No, it's not great. It's got a good score. That's really Ray Milland doing all that fancy writing in that film. Mm-hmm. You know, he plays a disgraced former officer who reenlists in the regiment, you know, after the Civil War. And he was in the Lifeguards Cavalry Regiment in Great Britain before World War II. Mm, that explains a lot. So he could handle himself on a horse. Well, what did you think of Sheb Woolley as Custer? Uh, you know, it's a small role, and I actually got to meet Sheb Woolley once at the Golden Boot Awards around here. Yeah. And uh, I asked him about, about that, and he said, I had a lot of fun, even though I didn't have all that much to do. Yeah. Well, I thought, you know, it's like I thought it was uh, Forrest Tucker's movie, really. He just, you know, as usual, oh, yeah. you know, he makes one of the best cavalry sergeants of all time, even if it's F Troop. All right, we are talking. He could steal the scene as the Irish sergeant, sergeant. and he has so much fun with with that whole kind of Victor McLaughlin. Well, I lost this fight, but you beat me, so now I become your friend. Yeah, (laughs) the the true Western way. Let's have drinks now. We're talking Custer here on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, Todd Roberts is in Los Angeles. Uh, Bunker and I are in Tucson. Dan Galeasso is our guest. He's also in Los Angeles. We're going to take our first break here, be back with much more of Emil Francie's Voices of the West right after these very important messages. Do stay tuned. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west, where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities 
activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club has served Southern Arizona since its original incorporation in 1948. We have a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse with a restaurant and lounge, and we're open year-round for all your sporting needs. Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday from 7.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., Come out and join us at our world-renowned facility located here in the Old Pueblo, Tucson Trap and Skeet Club at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. For more information, call 883-6426. As we recognize the service of America's men and women in uniform, let's also honor the families who sacrifice so much every day. Military families endure frequent deployments and separations. They carry on while their loved ones are sent into harm's way and wait patiently for their safe return. If you really want to honor a veteran, look for ways to support their families and thank them for their sacrifices. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911 Read classic western comics anytime at voicesofthewest.net Back on Amal Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander in Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts is in Los Angeles, along with our guest, Dan Galeasso. The topic is uh, George Armstrong Custer, and uh, Dan is writing a book about uh, the the celluloid Custer, uh, supposed to be coming out uh, end of 2022. Is that right, Dan? Still come, planning on coming I've out? I've got then? two other dates. Well, that's, that's what we hope right now. The manuscripts... <laughs> first draft is finished so okay. uh now it's making changes and revisions and i may be changing publishers so <laughs> <laughs> you go to, you're going to switch from little bighorn publishers to greasy grass publishers <laughs> i know the people at greasy grass so <laughs> actually there's an english publisher that i think would do a really good job and i'm with the university press right now yeah and there's a phrase in university press publishing well universities overall about They've all become race, gender, class. Yeah, that's the well, new college crap. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm I probably wouldn't get through the academic review. Yeah, but there's a great publishing company in in uh, Great Britain did a fantastic book on a movie we probably aren't even supposed to talk about now called Zulu. Oh yeah, yeah. And one of my favorite movies, which has nothing to do with what. I think of various racial things and stuff. It's just a fantastic military film about a real incident. 
And uh, I think they'll do a much better job, and I'm trying to connect up with them now. That Good. was one of Emil's favorite books, yeah. uh, movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the founder of this program was a student of that period of time of history, and uh, he knew stuff. He he knew stuff that uh, lots of professors probably didn't know. Yeah, uh, a voracious reader and. and could remember things? Holy crap. <laughs> oh, amazing, yeah. Well, you know, Dan, you'll appreciate this. I brought with me a list of 48 Custer books. That's And that's just that's just a small sampling of the Custer books. There are over 3,000 books that have been published on Custer, yeah. various <laughs> aspects of, of his life. Mm -hmm. One of the most recent, really interesting ones is T.J. Stiles. Incredible biographer. He won the Pulitzer Prize for history with his Custer book hmm. that really covers Custer through the Civil War, but doesn't concentrate on the little bighorn. It looks at him as a man of the Victorian times who was always after that gold ring. You know, mm -hmm. he tried to make it on Wall Street. He didn't quite make it. He was a good writer. He wrote some pretty good books, but he wasn't quite up to the talent of, of uh, Mark Twain. And, and so he looks at him as a man in the context of his times, mm -hmm. and that's what makes it so interesting. Do you know if Custer was being groomed for politics? Oh. That's one of those myths. There's Is it really? No truth to that at all. There's a terrible Custer book, Little Bighorn book, by Mari Sanzos, who wrote a pretty good book about buffalo hunters before she wrote the Custer book. And she had this convoluted thing that one of the great Western historians that lived in New Mexico for a long time, Robert Utley, now lives in Arizona. Uh, I can't tell you all of his statements about Mari Sanzos in her book, but she came up with this idiotic premise that Custer was going to send his head scout, Charlie Russell, from the battlefield to the nearest telegraph office 200 miles away when he won the battle. And the Democratic National Convention was taking place at that time back east. Uh -huh. And he was, and the telegram was going to go out, and he was going to try and get the, the nomination. All baloney. She has nothing factual to back that up. Mm, that it's all loosely based on this idea that the night before the battle, Custer told his Rickery scouts. Rickeries were a little tribe that provide a lot of scouts at the time, because they were enemies of the Sioux. The Sioux had pushed them out of that area of North Dakota. And he went in and he told his chief Rickerer scout, Bloody Knife, in sign language, that if I win this battle, I will be, uh, you know, a new leader. And he was talking about getting a promotion. He would have gone from being a he reverted to his lieutenant his first off his captain's rank after the Civil War right, right. in the regular U.S. Army. He was a major general of volunteers. He was a brevet. That happened to everybody yeah. after the end of the Civil War yeah. that had those kind of promotions. Mm -hmm. So he became a lieutenant colonel because he was the most recognizable guy at the end of the Civil War after Grant Tecumseh and Lee. And well, so he wound up, you know, in competition with other officers like Ronald McKenzie and the 4th Cavalry fighting the Comanches. They're all vying for those same promotions sure. at that time. General Crook, etc. And whoever had had a decisive victory 
during the, the Little Bighorn campaign, would have probably gotten a good promotion. So he would have wound up at that time as a brigadier general in the regular U.S. Army. Yeah, those, so that's where that myth all comes from. Yeah, those ranks change all the time. You know, right after the Civil War, as you mentioned, you might have been breveted as a major or a colonel or a general, but then you revert back. And I, I used to do Civil War reenacting, and uh, the, the character I portrayed was a, an army captain of artillery. And because of my age, they would say, well, now, why, why such an old captain? Well, you don't get to be major until the majors get knocked off. <laughs> I mean, that's just how that kind of thing was. And, and you know, that's why you see all those old sergeants, especially yeah. in the, in the, in the films. Well, I've got, I've got. You didn't little... tell him you were Captain Brittles and she wore yellow ribbon? No, I did not. Yeah. Well, I've got, I've got another question for you then, because this is an area that I've heard yay and nay that, uh, Custer turned down a commission in a black regiment, as did, uh, Captain Benteen. Is that to command it? You mean hmm? to command a black regiment? Yeah, yeah. That's that's absolutely true. Commanding a black regiment in those days was a kiss in the of Civil War Army was considered a dead end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's a, there's a little fellow come along named uh, Pershing that did quite well with that. But different time. Oh yeah, Grierson did quite well with it with the Tenth Cavalry commanding the Tenth Cavalry. But it, that but, was that was a little bit later than. Uh, what wasn't it? No, not no. that much. Later. It was all around the same well, time. Not much. It was around close to the same period. Okay. Well, and the thing was, if you want to know about Custer's attitudes about race, you know, he had the same African American female cook with him for years, Mary Adams. There's a lot of kind of different things about her, and his one of his scouts, one of his interpreters on the Little Bighorn campaign was Isaiah Dorman. Isaiah Dorman may or may not have been an escaped slave in the 1850s, but he made his way out to the Dakota Territory before the Civil War. He married a Sioux woman. He had a reputation for being a really hard-working kind of guy and knew the Sioux. Probably was had been friends with Sitting Bull quite possibly. There's a little bit of dissent about that. And Custer held up the 7th Cavalry at Fort Abraham Lincoln during the Little Bighorn Campaign, waiting for Isaiah Dorman to come there and be his interpreter. And he was paid $80 a month in 1876. Wow, that's pretty good bucks. When a lieutenant got $50 a month. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good bucks. That's how valued he was, and he died in Reno's retreat at the Little Bighorn. Well, here's another question for you then, because and there's a book at the prompts it from me. The book is General Custer, Libby, Custer and Their Dogs, A Passion for Hounds from the Civil War to the Little Bighorn. And according to this, at one time, he was running around 50 dogs. Wow. I don't know if it was 50 or not, but I know he loved dogs, and there was always a pack of dogs around him hmm. in the earlier campaigns. By the time he got the little bighorn, that had settled down quite a bit. How yeah. how many There's a couple of great pictures of him with that wolf, with the wolfhound. You, you've been to the uh, site of the, uh, the little bighorn battlefield, correct, Dan? Numerous times. In fact, one of my coolest things I ever got to do was go horseback, you can't take horses on the National Park Service land. Right. But a good friend of mine, Jim Hatzel, who's one of the premier 
cavalry reenactor, Indian Wars cavalry reenactor guys. He's based out of Rapid City, South Dakota. He was bringing back a load of horses with another cowboy that had been in a student film, and I was going to be up in Billings for the Little Bighorn Associates gathering, and he called me up and he goes, how'd you like to ride horseback from the back of Custer Hill to Reno-Benteen Battlefield? So we were on what they call the preservation land, which is not Mm -hmm. part part of the National Park Service land. Right. So we spent the whole day riding the like seven miles from the back of Custer Hill to Reno, Benteen, and back, stopping at various points. And Jim is the guy who trains the new rangers that are working at Little Bighorn Battlefield. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he knew that. I know it pretty good, but he knew it far better than I did. And it was... A real treat to do that on horseback. How cool. I, we got to do a break here, but when we come back, I want to continue on, on this line uh, about the uh, the battlefield site and, and impressions and that sort of thing. So um, we're going to do that and uh, right after uh, these very important messages. So this is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Uh, Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, Todd Roberts. Our guest is Dan Galeasso. We'll be back right after this. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Polash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Polash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, first. First, contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club has served Southern Arizona since its original incorporation in 1948. We have a 9,000 square foot clubhouse with a restaurant and lounge, and we're open year-round for all your sporting needs. Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday from 7.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., Come out and join us at our world-renowned facility located here in the Old Pueblo, Tucson Trap and Skeet Club at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. For more information, call 883-6426. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats, but did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right, it's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. 
More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Tom, the host of the Movie Zealots podcast, and I'm inviting you to give the Movie Zealots podcast a listen. Every episode, my co-hosts and I review the latest box office releases, but there's more than simply just that. We also play games like the Alexa quote of the show and may the odds be ever in your favor and have a from the cutting room floor segment that is an open forum to discuss anything from our thoughts of a Netflix TV series to our experiences with movie subscriptions such as the AMC Stubbs or MoviePass. So, after finishing this podcast, please give the Movie Zouts podcast a listen. We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Simply search Movie Zouts. Until then, that's a wrap. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. This is the Voices of the West. Yes, we are burning daylight. <laughs> And uh, I can smell it. I can smell that smell. I know, I know. Isn't that great? Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Dan Galioso is our guest. And Dan, I got to tell you, uh, we always have to play the uh, theme to the High Chaparral at the bottom of the hour break when we come back because Mr. de France was in. 50 plus of those, and uh, he walks if I don't play the theme song. So It's in my contract. Yeah, it's in his contract. So, a little something. Else. I have a question for Bunker about the High Chaparral. Uh-oh. Okay. It's not There's true. There's a great episode about the Buffalo Soldiers. Yes. Oh, yeah. Cowboy Hall. Did you work on that? Yes, I did. And I'll tell that you what. It was just a really cool episode, and they had a great song that the Buffalo Soldiers sang. About chasing Geronimo. Yeah. Well, you know, that that to me, Chaparral to me is one of the, the, the best structured westerns ever made on TV. Not because I was in it, but just because it was, the storyline was realistic as, 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 as much as an entertaining television series could be. And the race relations was pretty accurate. And one thing that was made it stand out from, I think, all of the other Western series, of, you know, of the, of the big ranches, you know, big country, bonanza, and all that, was that could have been a real working ranch with the people we had there. Mm-hmm. And it was just unique. But well, I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the neat things about that is we were doing running inserts out at Ryan Field, which is a little airfield uh, out west of Tucson that they used for training in World War II. And we did our first run down there, and the there the camera car's on the runway, and we're on the side. Well, nobody had scouted where we're running. It seems like it was full of dog holes, and the first charge down that road looked like whack-a-mole. Mm. We, the guys were popping up into the air all over the place. <laughs> Oh, and I also am, am remiss if I do not mention this. Today is would be the birthday of Audie Murphy. Yes. And, ah. in fact, there was an Audie Murphy movie on that I was watching before coming to the studio, Gunpoint. 
Well, we were just talking during one of the breaks about that. Good, good and, cast in that one. And what's what's neat here in Tucson is probably John Wayne gets played. His movies get played more than any other actor's movies, mm-hmm. especially here in the West. After him, it's got to be in Tucson anyway. It's got to be Audie Murphy, mm-hmm. which tells you something about his popularity. Yeah. I have a great, quick Audie Murphy story for you. Cool. I've told Todd this story before. Uh, evidently, at the time of the late 50s, early 60s, when Quick Draw was really a cool thing that was going on, uh-huh, and a yeah. lot of Hollywood cowboys <coughs> had gotten into Quick Draw, Hugh O'Brien thought he was going to be a hot shot. <laughs> and he, he sent a challenge to Audie Murphy to let's face off in a, in a quick draw competition. And Murphy's response would, would love to suggest we use actual ammunition. <laughs> That's a true story. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the pleasure of working with Audie on Arizona Raiders. And I'll tell you, and Bear Hutkins was one of my closest friends in Hollywood. And Bear was like, they would go to the races together. I think they were like, you know, Siamese twins at the hips when it came to, to the races. And Bear used to tell me stories about Audie that that nobody else knew but Bear. <laughs> David, oh, just amazing guy. So, Dan, the first time that you ever visited the um, Little Bighorn, what was it like for you? I was 15 years old. Wow. Vacation with my family. They knew that I really wanted to go there. And I was probably a bit of a pretentious 15-year-old who thought he knew it all. And I had questions for the Rangers there that they couldn't even answer. <laughs> and so, but it was to walk up to the top of Custer Hill and see that monument with all the names on it. And I have a really cool story about the monument up there. You know, every trooper who was identified who died with Custer and actually those who died with Reno or Bentine, you know, the other part of the battlefield that the survivors were at, they're all on that monument. And to sit there and look at that and one of the coolest movie TV things about the little bighorn is the Twilight Zone episode. It's called Seventh is Made of Phantoms. Man, that was so good. Oh, yeah, and you mm. can tell that, that Rod Sterling was really into it because yeah. how he used a lot of the things like the monument yep. and the lone yep. lawyer teepee, which is really part of the story. Yeah. And yeah. a few years, this was in the early 90s, right after Desert Storm. I was up there that summer for about a week, and I drive over from, I was staying in Livingston to the battlefield that morning, and here comes a group of Montana National Guardsmen back from Iraq and Kuwait. And so they're taking a break at the battlefield, lots of tourists. And they walk up to the top of the hill. And I said, I got to get to the top of the hill where the monument is when they're up there. And they're all gathered around the monument to take photos. And I asked the young captain with him, is it okay if I take a photo? And he said, absolutely. And he goes, Twilight Zone episode? And I go, you got it. Nice. <laughs> well, you know, we have uh, there's a fellow named Bill Markley. You might know him. He's a Western writer. I know Bill. Well, from he, Western writers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a great guy. 
he uh, he also was a reenactor, and he worked on Little Big Man and Dances Son of the Morning Wolves. Star. The Dances of the Wolves and, as well. But Dances of the Wolves is, and he's yeah, friends with my yeah. friend Jim, yeah. Jim Hatzel. Yeah, and he's got great stories about up there. And one of the stories is he was up there with another fella. They were they were working on uh, it wasn't it wasn't one of the movies, but they were working on a reenactment thing up there, and they were riding. It was like end of the day. They were riding back to the the, the uh, horse truck, and he said they they got to just just the, 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 he said the most eerie feeling. Uh, because he had to stop and, and do an adjustment on the saddle. And he said, standing there, he said, he says, he says, I could just feel. He says, it's like it was coming up out of the earth. You could just feel it. And I will confirm that those kinds of things do indeed happen. It happened to me. I used to work for the Florida Park Service. And uh, the uh, park I worked at was uh, Fort uh, Zachary Taylor down in Key West. <clears throat> and uh, it was uh, one of uh, only three Civil War fortresses that was uh, held by the Union uh, in the South during the entire conflict. Um and the fort never saw action, but there were tons of malaria deaths there and scurvy and whatnot. Yeah. And those walls, those walls do talk. Yeah. And, and and that's why I asked you what was it like for you, Dan, that first time that you went there? Because the first time I walked into the onto the parade ground at Fort Taylor, and I'm amongst all of these bricks from 1840. 1850 as the place is being constructed and I'm just thinking of all the people who were there and you know you're walking in those footsteps I mean that, that to me that that that's incredible I was stationed at Fort Huachuca uh, about almost 100 years after my great-grandfather was stationed there and so you know I'm in the old post area and, and he was in the old post area because that's all there was and you know maybe I followed in the same footsteps he did I mean it's just it's, that stuff just boggles me this wasn't the first time I was there, but a good friend of mine, Dan Martinez, was one of the rangers up there for years and is now the historian at the Arizona Monument down in, in Pearl Harbor. And we got to be there at closing time on an overcast, you know, June, close to the anniversary of the battle, when you get kind of hot thunderstorms and oh, stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's only a couple of us that a couple of more well-known his, historians like Paul Hutton and Bob Utley and Paul Hedron, and we're there with, with Dan Martinez. And to be there as those clouds would come in, and at the end of the day, because, you know, it's not getting dark until like 9, and we were up there at about 8.30, that's when you get that eerie kind of feeling. And when you talk to the rangers who lived up there, there are weird little things that they talk yep. about that are a little spooky. You can take it one way or the other. Hey, we but, had uh, we had we had a, a the apparition of an old Civil War soldier, a sergeant, helping out tourists. <laughs> Honest <laughs> to God, people could see this man, and he would talk to them, and uh, I mean, it was just the most bizarre thing ever. I came across a Civil War soldier who was sitting on the casement in, in uh, uh, or on a, a ledge inside the, the casement. And I look at him and I think, wait a minute, <laughs> wrong uniform. And uh, I go to walk over to start talking and the apparition disappears. Uh. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, okay, 
Uh, where's my Jack Daniels? <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned Dr. Paul Hutton, and I've got to say, his Custer Reader, which he was the editor of, it's it's a good source for information about Custer. It's the modern version of the book that Colonel Graham did years ago oh. called The Custer Men. And Paul's an old friend. I mean, I, I owe Paul a lot to introducing me to a lot of people in the Custer and Alamo fields that were academics or were were published really good writers and stuff. And uh, that's how this book partially came about, because mm-hmm. Paul and I share that same kind of passion. And another right. big Custer authority professor, Brian Dippy, up at the uh, University of Victoria in Canada. He was a close friend of Paul's as well. Well, let's let's get into the Custer ridiculous. Let's do that after we take after our the break. break. Okay, because then we can we'll have a little bit of time to do that. So okay. we'll do that uh, right after this. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker France, and Todd Roberts. Dan Galioso is our guest. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west, where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallion.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Hi, this is Craig Morgan with a special message for all those who have served in the U.S. Army. The National Museum of the United States Army, to be built at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, will include the Soldier's Registry, an electronic record of Americans who have worn the Army uniform, recognizing their service. I've already added my story to the registry. I hope you'll add yours. To learn more and to make your story a permanent part of the National Army Museum, visit armyhistory.org. 
The Tucson Trappet Ski Club is one of the best-kept economic secrets in town. This 900-member group maintains one of the finest shotgun shooting ranges in the country, featuring trap, skeet, five-stand, and sporting clays fields, and hosts national and international events that bring thousands of people and millions of dollars into our community. The Spring Satellite Grand American Tournament alone involves 1,200 participants for 10 days. Learn more about this and their other contributions to our community at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. Watch classic Western movies anytime at VoicesOfTheWest.net. Down the trail kind of, music. I kind of thought we'd uh, mosey on down the trail. Dog. Oh, that's great. <laughs> this is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, across from me in Los Angeles. It's Todd Roberts and our guest Dan Galioso. And we're talking about uh, Custer, George Armstrong, one each general. And uh, Dan's written a book on, um, uh, or is writing a book on uh, Custer. But before we, we've talked about the book, and there's one more thing I want to get to before we let's sign off but let's get to this custer silliness that I well, oh yeah this has to do with a series uh, i remember seeing a couple of episodes and it wasn't bad but it was just so silly and that was the custer series with wayne Mauder. <laughs> i'll tell you that got started because it was a 20th century fox show and several years before, Richard Zanuck, Daryl Zanuck's son, Daryl Zanuck ran the studio at the time, the dream project of one of his best friends who was a producer at Fox was to do the ultimate Custer movie. They optioned a book by David Humphreys Miller that was Indian accounts of the battle. And it was going to be the day Custer fell. It was going to be the longest Long day, day with, Custer. with Custer. Fred Zimmerman, Zimmerman who directed High Noon, was going to direct it. They were looking at locations. They had lots of props made. An incredible script by a fantastic writer who also wrote Anatomy of a Murder. And Cleopatra cost the studio so much money they had to close down the production. Hmm. But they had all this stuff sitting there. The research and stuff. So they regenerated it into that TV series. And the series, you know, tried to tie a lot of things together. They had a lot of the real characters, but it's an ongoing series. And so they're not paying attention to the specifics of the history. And so you're right, Bunker, that it's, it's got this kind of odd edge to it. The pilot's not bad. Yeah. For a 19, late 1960s you know, TV series... But, uh, you know, when you realize it was like the studio tried to recoup some money from their investment into this big production. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, well, like, you know, it sounds it, like a bar owner I know yeah. who used to uh, mix all the drinks at the pour, end of the pour night. Pour back in the yeah, bottle. Well, you know, <laughs> the one thing about it, though, is I, th I thought Michael Dante made a, made a very good crazy horse. He did, and Wayne Wonder wasn't a bad Custer actor. No, no. Well, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got a Custer story for you. Uh, right after we finished shooting uh, the Hallelujah Trail, uh, the guy that was in charge of 
the training for the troops on there, uh, he came up to Neil Summers and myself and a couple other guys and said, what are you guys doing next summer? You know, and of course, when you're young, you're young and you're cowboy and you're not doing anything <laughs> except looking. And we said, man, nothing. What's up? Well, he had had an offer had been made to him. They were going to do the day Custer died, the Dorothy M. Johnson thing. Uh, but the premise was they were going to shoot the, the battle scene from a blimp, and they wanted to do the complete battle wow. in one take, and our job was to go wow. up there, train the Indians, train the cowboys, and we would have been up there for several months. Wow. And just like the Cleopatra story, mm-hmm. uh, Fergus and Fromps, a uh, couple of producers, low-budget producers, decided to do the Great Sioux Massacre <laughs> because they had these great plans of selling it so that the studio you know, would buy, you know, the studio would buy it up, and they would never even have to show it. And it didn't work. And there's another customer. They wound up making the, the Great Sioux Massacre with all this stock footage yeah. from a terrible, rotten customer movie called <laughs> Sitting Bull. <laughs> I, I worked on the Great Sioux Massacre, yeah. Uh, Iron Eyes killed me in it. <laughs> all right. Uh, one, one, one final question, Dan. Um, as a historical consultant uh, to, to the movies, when you see something that has been written into the script or that they're doing, and you know that it is historically incorrect, are you able to convince that director or assistant director or whomever you have to convince that they really ought to change it? Or do they, does, does the studio say, wait a second, this is only entertainment. Don't worry about it. It's going to cost you. You pick and choose your battles wisely. Thank you. On <laughs> Rough Riders. Yeah. And of course, a lot of Arizona connections for Rough Riders. Yep. Bucky O'Neill, Prescott, yep. etc. Yep. Great. And great John series. Milius, who did The Wind and the Lion, who's a good friend of mine, he wanted Teddy Roosevelt to have a single action colt that is his single action colt that he used as a cowboy up in the Dakotas. Mm hmm. And I said, John, you know, that's not correct. The story behind the real pistol is much more interesting because Teddy's brother-in-law was in the Navy, and he was part of the crew that went down to examine the wreckage of the Maine, and they got the um, armory doors open. This is mm. before the war breaks out, yeah, and they yeah. got a pistol out of the armory. Wow. And it was from an officer. And he had it engraved to Teddy, and it was a thirty-eight double-action revolver. Wow. And I said, that's the real story. And John looked at me dead and went, he's the cowboy president. He should carry the cowboy gun. <laughs> yep. And I went, you're right. Yep. Well, I worked I worked on uh, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, which he did the script on. And oh, yeah. him and Houston would go out dove hunting every morning before work. We'd show up at work and then wait for them to come back from the field. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course. You know, if there was a cigar store or a place with good shotguns, yeah. and you're driving around looking at locations. John was going to stop there. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like when I was in Los Angeles uh, last time, and and Todd and I are out in the middle of wine country, and he sees something, and he wants to just pull over, and we go in, look in the store, and start drawing with the people, and it was a fun time. <laughs> It just had a, yes, it was. a totally, totally <laughs> fun time. Totally That's a premise for one of our spinoffs. Which was two doors down from a bar. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, uh, yeah. this was adult Disneyland. That's right. I have one question for Dan. Uh, I had two. You asked one, Harry. Okay. So my question is, which actor do you feel encapsulates Custer the best? 
No question, Errol Flynn. The panache, the charisma, the horsemanship, the athleticism. It's all there. Yeah, Yeah, and this was uh, just after Robin Hood and and Captain Blood. My second favorite is Mulligan because he's just such a hoot as Custer. Guys, we're out of time. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Anytime, man. Hey, I want to hang out with you guys down in Tucson. Yeah, but you, do it, you do come it. on down, and when I come to when Bunker and I come to Los Angeles, we'll hang with you guys too. There's so one. There's got, one caveat right. though. If you come over here to Tucson, bring a movie and give Harry and me a job in it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, thanks so much. Dan Galliasso, appreciate it. And uh, Todd, thank you so much for being with us uh, from Los Angeles. Bunker, thank you so much. Great show. This is one of my favorites. And until next time. 78, 79, 80. So long. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West.